Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Mark chapter 14 as we're working our way, passion and the resurrection of Jesus. 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction in so resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from their wounds or from the hardship of that war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planner and trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties in order to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly ordered General George Washington to open fire on his own home. The home was destroyed, and he died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying because of the war. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and mills were destroyed. For over a year, he lived in the forest and in caves, returning home only to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion. These men were willing to sacrifice and to give all for their conviction. Would you be willing to do so today? We sung about that today. Father, I pray that you'd open up our minds and hearts to the truth of your word. Help us to be willing to count the cost. Help us to rejoice and to receive suffering as good soldiers. We thank you for the word of God who comes to us. We thank you for Christ who was willing to suffer. And we thank you for this time. Open up our minds and hearts that we may receive and respond to your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. The stage is now set. All the necessary actors are in place. The time has approached. The conditions are ripe for God's predetermined plan to offer his son as the final sacrifice. Peter has preached that the kings of the earth had set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. He said, in this city were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Matthew had told us that Jesus, knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, set his face towards Jerusalem and would not be um, derailed. And today we come to the last few chapters of Mark's Gospel to look at the passion and the resurrection of Christ. It is Wednesday. It's the final week of Christ's ministry here on earth. It's two days before his crucifixion in our passage today. It's 33 years after the angels had proclaimed to the shepherds in the field, Fear not, behold, bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For unto you is born on this day the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Mark is now reaching his conclusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wrote his gospel to instruct and encourage the church of Rome in its infant beginning stages as they begin to face persecution. As we open the Bible and we look at Mark in this last section, we will see the twin themes of suffering and triumph. Suffering and triumph. Mark records Jesus' suffering as the betrayal and denial from his disciples in the injustice and the mockery during his trial before the Sanhedrin and Pilate and his suffering from the brutality and shame of his crucifixion. We will explore each of those themes as we continue on. Jesus' triumph will be seen as we come to the end of the chapter in his resurrection three days later after his crucifixion. Mark has recorded that Jesus had taught his disciples of his coming death at least three times prior to this. It was important for Jesus to prepare his disciples for those events, just as we saw in chapter 13, in preparing them for the close of the age. Jesus knew that his appointed time was very near. Yet we see that Jesus willingly obeyed the Father. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And so Mark is now setting the table for us, so to speak, for that time. In this, we're going to see four sets of people, but we're going to look at three types of hearts that are exposed in this passage. The first one we're going to find in verse 1, as the religious leaders jealously leads them to plot to kill Jesus. And look at verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was what we read earlier through land in the Scripture reading. This is that time. They're getting ready to celebrate that event. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now Mark has given us two time markers. The first one is the Passover. That's the Jewish festival we read earlier that commemorates the passing over of the Hebrew children and the Hebrew homes by the angel of the Lord who had killed all the firstborn of Egypt, the last plague against Pharaoh so long ago. It was also the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that followed immediately after the Passover and would last seven days. It was their desire not to cause an uproar. Now it's fitting that Jesus' crucifixion, his betrayal, occurs during these high holy days. In less than 48 hours, Jesus will have his blood poured out and have his flesh beaten and torn. Earlier in Mark, John the Baptist had declared of Jesus, Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he saw Jesus coming towards him. The religious leaders up to this point have been looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus for some time. After healing the man with the withered hand on a Sabbath in, in Mark chapter 3, you may recall that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now that Jesus is located in Jerusalem, they have renewed and intensified their desire, their efforts to destroy him. This has been a long time 
coming in their eyes. However, the time of Passover and the feast are underway. Jerusalem is filled with travelers and worshipers, including most likely a large number of people from Galilee, where Jesus was still very popular and highly respected and well thought of. They have already seen how the people responded to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem just several days earlier on what we call Palm Sunday. They cannot attack him here in publicly because of fear of a riot. The Apostle John writes of the religious leader's dilemma after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the death a few days earlier. Take your Bibles and join with me in John chapter 11 as we just take a moment as we continue to set the scene. In John chapter 11, Jesus here comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. One of his greatest miracles. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Very familiar, very well-known people in the scripture. Look at verse 45 of John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told him what Jesus had done in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. They recognize that there was something special about him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations. They seek to destroy him because of their jealousy of him. They were afraid that his popularity would, would outsurpass their own. They, would, they felt like that if people continue to follow him, that there would be an uproar. And maybe the messianic thought would be, now we have our king, let's kick out the Romans. Or let's recapture our temple. So in their minds and heart, there's a jealousy. And they seek to destroy him. It led to a dark place in their hearts. Again, this is all in the movement, in the hand, the providence of God and working their way for God's plan. So the religious leader's jealousy leads them to plot to kill Jesus. Had it been some time coming, but now they see that they must do something soon. Yet they're still waiting for the opportune time. They could not grab him. Jesus always seemed to be surrounded by so many. They needed to call him from the group in order to accomplish their plan. But the second heart exposed is a little bit better. And that's the selfless act of love and devotion that leads to a timeless admiration. Verse 4. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he's reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke that flask and she poured it over his head. And let's continue in verse 4. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But in verse 6, we see Jesus' response. Where Mark records, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you, whenever you want, you could do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We see a selfless act 
of love and devotion that leads to a timeless admiration. Now this event here actually happened the week before. This is not on Wednesday. Mark puts it here, I believe, in a way so he can show us the different heart motivations of the three actors or four actors that we're going to see here today. First, you see hatred and spite from the religious leaders. But now we see that in the midst of that, there are those who still loved and wanted to devote themselves to him. The perfume he's here comes from a plant that's found in India, which would make it very expensive, especially from someone in the Middle East. Travel and commerce was not the same. There was no Amazon Prime there. There was no free shipping, so to speak. So this was very, very expensive perfume. It would have been very expensive. Mark records that it was actually worth over a year's worth of salary and wages. Men, I won't even ask you if your wife ever bought a, a perfume that cost your year's salary, but this is what happened here. I, I'm not sure how she was able to afford it. I'm not sure why, but this is Marcus telling us this was very, very expense, expensive. And the reaction, though, of the disciples is very harsh and condemning. They're actually giving her a very harsh treatment here. I don't know if it comes across so well in our English, but, but what we're looking here, it's a very, very thing. They're giving her a very difficult, hard time. And their concern was for the poor. Now we have to remember that the Passover was a time to give to the poor. This was part of what they would do. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, it was the practice from ancient times to make a pre-Passover collection to assist the poor in purchasing staples and things that they need. So in their minds, they're thinking, wait a second, this is the Passover. We're remembering how the Egyptians gave to us. We're remembering how we were once slaves and were brought out. This should have been sold so we could give to the poor. So there was some sensitivity in their minds and hearts. However, there was an insensitivity to what she was doing. And it was to her love and devotion. It was too harsh. They did not understand, as Jesus is going to elaborate, the poor is always with you. Now, Jesus is not being unkind or dismissive of the needs of the poor. Let's not take this portion of Scripture and say, well, since Jesus said this, we need to just then be dismissive of them. Jesus was not. But he understood his time was short. He just had a few days left. When Jesus uses that phrase, you always had the poor, most likely it's coming from Deuteronomy, the old law, where he says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns or within your lands, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. So the disciples, at least in their mind, are thinking of the right things. I don't believe their heart is in it, but in their mind, they're trying to do their religious duty. The Old Testament goes on to say, you shall open your hand to him and you shall lend for them sufficient for his needs. For they'll never cease to be poor in the land. So I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother for the needy and the poor in your land. So not to be dismissive, but Jesus is saying, wait a second, I am here for a short time. What she's doing here is important. Instead of condemning her, they should have been commending her act of worship. They did not recognize it for what it really was. See, it's the act and symbolism behind that act that is remembered not the identity of the woman. Now, John Gospel does tell us that it's Mary. It's the sister of Lazarus and Martha. It's an act, though, that will be heard and read throughout history. 
She meant it as a sign of her love and devotion. But Jesus, who knows his time of death is near, recognizes the symbolism found in the act. It is he who pronounces the results. And let me share with you, as you and I do our acts of devotion and worship, as we go through our religious duty and we try to do the things, it is God who recognizes whether that's pleasing or not. And hence he tells us to do these things from the heart, for God looks on the heart, not on the outside. The question you may ask, did Mary know? And I know that all of a sudden goes to a song, and we're not going to sing it. Did Mary know that he was ready to die? And was she really, was it her desire really to anoint him for burial? I think it's unsure. Luke describes her as one who loved Jesus and spent time listening to his teaching. In Luke chapter 2, it says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. He had been preaching about his upcoming death and his resurrection. So maybe there was a part of her spirit who understand at that time she trusted that. As we can see, the disciples really did not understand what Jesus was saying. It's easy for us to read Scripture and say, how could they not know? How could they not understand? When he told them at least, recorded in Scripture, at least three times. We've preached on all three of those. But yet we have to see that they truly did not understand. Did Mary? We're not sure. She could have had an insight to it. She may have had a vague understanding when taught of his death and resurrection. Yet Mark and the rest of the Gospels really don't tell us if she knew for sure. But again, it's Jesus who recognizes her heart and he accepts it. What I think you see in Jesus, though, is that he's already looking past his death into a future advancement of the Gospel. See, he knows that his suffering gives way to triumph. She is anointing my head for burial, and what she does will be known wherever the gospel is preached. That's what I'm focusing on here, is he's saying that that word, her devotion, will be spread throughout all the world. It will be a timeless admiration for those of us who hear and read it. Jesus knew that the gospel was going to advance. He knew that the, his death, his burial, was not the end of his ministry and the end of what God was going to accomplish. You see, the Apostle Paul declared that the gospel is central to all of Scripture. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, what I delivered you of first importance is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Paul writes that it's the hope of the world speaking of the gospel, and that gospel is advancing. He says, the hope of the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. And what Jesus is doing here is saying her act of love and devotion is going to be tied into the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the reconciliation. And this will go out as she shares it. We have to understand it's the gospel that radically changes the world. In Acts it says that these men who were known as Christians have turned the world upside down. And Christianity did. It changed the world for the better. And as it advanced its way. And what she's done, her love and devotion has been preached and read and taught for these 2,000 years years. Did she know all what she was doing? No. But Christ could read her heart 
and he exposes it for you and I. So when you and I come, is our love and devotion something that Jesus sees? Does a simple act of giving something that is of worth, is our sacrifice, the things that we're willing to break and to pour over Jesus, is it pleasing to him? Is it filled with love and devotion? That's something for us to contemplate. It's something for us to struggle with in our lives. For there are many people who are out helping and doing good things, but yet their worship is not acceptable to God. We need to recognize that just doing religious duty, doing good outside of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind becomes almost worthless. As Paul said, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm what? I'm like a, just a noisy gong. The third heart that we see here is that of Judas as he betrays Jesus. This becomes a difficult part of Scripture. We see the religious leaders, we can understand their jealousy and hatred. We can understand Mary, her brother has been raised from the dead. She had a close relationship with Jesus, her love and devotion. But then we see Judas, one of Christ's disciples, volunteers to betray Jesus. Look at the passage, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they had heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The religious leaders are finally presented with an inside man. Someone who can call Jesus from the group. The one who can let them know when Jesus is most vulnerable. We need an inside man who's willing to look for the right opportunity to secretly arrest Jesus when he's separated from the crowds. And in several weeks, you'll see how that happens. Judas is one of the original 12 that Jesus desired to train. He was one of the 12 who spent several years with Jesus, listening and learning and serving. He was a close disciple, but he chose still to betray Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, we had read this earlier, when Jesus had went up the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. Judas was one whom God desired. And they came to him and he appointed twelve. He named them apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. When he sent them out two by two, Judas cast out demons. Judas healed. Judas taught. Judas prayed. Judas preached. Judas was one of the twelve. He's always the last of the twelve because of what he did. But he's one of God's own. God chose him to be that one. His price was just the promise of money. We now know 30 pieces of silver. We don't see it here, but we will see it. The biggest question I asked why is why did Judas betray Jesus? What is it about him that caused his heart to be so cruel and so filled with hate? Or what was it filled with? What is it that would make you betray the one that you felt was the Messiah? Was it his concern for helping the poor? Some believe it was that. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. We'll see as John is given his record of what's happening here in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. 
Speaking of this event, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, has said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This man was a double dipper. He would take the money, put it in, and then when no one was looking, would take some out and use it. So did he betray Jesus because of what happened here? This, this was the turning point. It was the camel that broke or the straw that broke the camel's back. Did he do it because the ointment was not sold? I don't believe so. It might have been one of the things that turned his mind. But he was a thief. So was it his social concern for helping the poor? I don't believe so. Was it for money? Well, Jesus said, if you'll give me some money, I'll deliver them over to you. Was it just for the 30 pieces of silver? Could have been. Did the devil make him do it? In John chapter 6, Jesus answered, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, Simon the Iscariot. Was he just made and forced to by Satan? John also says when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, so we must say, well, there was a part of it where Satan put it in his heart and said, you need to betray Jesus. He tempted him to do so. Or was it preordained? Turn to John chapter 17. Look at verse 6. We're going to read 6 through 12. This is the highly priestly prayer. Jesus is praying. This is at the Lord's Supper. Jesus prays this, I have manifested your name, speaking of God, to the Father, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they believe that you have sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In Acts chapter 1, Peter preaches, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. In other words, he was preordained. He's again another one of the stages. He's another one of the actors that is being called to this time. But yet, was it for his concern for the poor in some cases? Was it because of the money? Yes. Was it because of of Satan? Yes. But he also played the part that was wrote for him. Judas, in all of his heart, is exposed that he truly did not love God. It was exposed that his heart was wicked. And he was a thief from the beginning, and he was a thief until the end. And so we see here that Judas volunteers to betray Jesus. And you and I must be careful that our hearts do not do the same. For there are many that can walk with Jesus, who can profess Jesus, who can listen, who can teach, who can lead, who can even preach, but yet their heart truly is not one of Christ. The warning comes is to check your heart test and examine to see whether you're in the faith. And that's the call that I would give you on this portion of Scripture. 
this morning when it comes to Judas. Do not let your relationships or your proximity to Jesus fool you into thinking that you are a Christian. For many of us portray him within our hearts. I have prayed that this morning. My own heart this week has betrayed the ways in which I have failed to honor Christ with love and devotion. There are many times that I have followed Christ out of my own interest and my own agenda, and that has not been honoring to God. And so I don't call you a Judas today. I'm not saying that you're here ready to put Christ back on the cross, but yet many times we try to do so when our hearts betray us, when we fail to follow Christ with love and devotion. But I want to bring your attention as we're setting the table here for the passion and the resurrection of Christ, is Mark uses this time to show us some reflections of the heart. The religious leaders' hearts were hardened with hate and malice towards Jesus. And we need to recognize that we live in a world in which many people's hearts are hardened with hate and malice towards Jesus Christ. Judas's heart was filled with betrayal and deceit. There are some that will profess Christ, but yet we know that they truly aren't. Their actions, their hearts, we betray them. The disciples' hearts were filled with good intentions. And I think this is where many of us today find ourselves. The disciples' heart was filled with good intentions, though it was clouded with a judgmental attitude. It was mired with some personal desires. And so I would ask you this morning, in what ways do you find yourself? I have good intentions. I want to serve Christ. But what are some ways in which you're thinking and what some things in your heart that still cloud that service? The woman's heart was filled with love and devotion for Jesus. Not that she was perfect, but yet it was pure. She was willing to sacrifice what she had, no matter what the cost would be. But then what I also find enjoyment and rejoicing in and strength and comfort is that Jesus' heart was filled with the joy at the future advancement of the gospel. He was looking past his death and burial when, he, when she gave that. For he recognized that it, was, it would be an endless eternity of testimony. He was ready to be broken and spilled out as a sacrificial lamb. That was his desire and he was looking and he says, this will go throughout the whole world. And that's what we are doing now. That's what we're waiting for, for Christ to come, for that gospel to be spread throughout the world. So let me ask you here, out of these five that we looked at this morning, what does your heart demonstrate? Does it demonstrate a heart hardened with malice and hate? Is it demonstrating betrayal and deceit? Does it demonstrate good intentions but yet clouded with things of this world? Or does it show one of love and devotion as well as the desire to advance the gospel of Christ. Romans 12, I would like to leave you with this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what the will of God is, 
and what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we started out, those signers of the decoration, they were willing to pay the cost and sacrifice. Jesus, as we open up Mark 14, is able and willing to count that cost and the sacrifice. Mary, the unknown woman Mary, whom we think of Mary, she was willing to do so as well. Would you do so this morning? What's preventing you from giving God the full love and devotion He so strongly deserves? I would ask with every head bowed and every eye closed. I would ask you to take a moment to pause, to consider what the Word of God has spoken to us this morning. Would you pray and ask the Spirit, how would you call me this morning? What does my heart demonstrate? Then would you respond to what the Spirit would call you this morning? Father, thank you. You're so good to us. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would expose our heart this morning. Is it filled with malice and hatred towards you? Father, is it filled with betrayal? Is it filled with the desire to serve our own needs and our own agenda? Or is it open to love and devotion? Father, I pray that we desire to serve you as you called us to. May we be rejoicing at the advancement of the gospel. Lord, I look in our hearts, expose us for us to see, and I pray that you would give us the strength to count the costs, to be willing to be broken and spilled out for you. Lord, that you may be glorified and others may come to know you, proclaim you as Lord. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.